0: Hi, listeners. We just finished part two of laying down our weapons. It's a conversation about gun violence and the role that we as individuals and congregations can and must play. Part one featured Shane Claiborne of Red Letter Christians, Mike Martin of Raw Tools, my friend Kelly Knox, who decommissioned his AR-15 assault rifle, and Pastor Amy Kasari, one of the pastors in a conservative evangelical church in central Oregon that's on a journey toward becoming a gun decommissioning site. If you haven't listened to that conversation, it's Unlike any conversation that I've heard on this issue, and I want to encourage you to give it a listen because it paved the way for this second conversation. In part two, we get wildly practical on how our congregations can become gun decommissioning sites. It's time that we become instruments of peace in our own communities and contexts on this issue in ways that reduce gun violence. I want to say a special thanks to our Ember community. You are the ones who sustain resources like these and make them possible and accessible to the masses. Every link that's mentioned in this particular conversation will show up in our show notes. And so without any further ado, here is part two. Friends, so welcome to a second session on gun violence, looked by Global Immersion. My name is J.R. Weigert. I'm the co-founding director of Global Immersion and the moderator of today's conversation. we're a peacemaking training organization that... We're focused primarily on US American Christians with our work. And so when we host conversations like these, we really do it for reasons. The first is education. The fact of the matter is my vision is not 2020. I'm never fully right. I'm always partially wrong. And so we need to get exposure to the things that we're not yet aware of. And so this is a, a conversation that's about education. Secondly, it's about transformation we're not going to move the needle on any level of personal or social transformation through tricks and new scripts. The fact of the matter is we need to become substantively different kinds of people. So when we host conversations like these, they're transformational in their intent. So education, transformation. And then the third reason we host conversations like this is around mobilization. And we're not built to make change alone. We actually need to link arms and do it together. And you're going to see a group of friends here talking about this and offering very practical ideas and invitations into the work of reducing gun violence in America. And I want to invite you to connect with one another via the comment thread as well. In all that global immersion does, we're forming everyday peacemakers to mend divides. Peacemakers are folks who are learning to see more accurately, emerge more courageously, and contend more creatively and collaboratively in the work of repair. And so ultimately our hope is that this conversation forms us more fully as everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders. Again, welcome into this conversation. It's just, it's mind-bending to me that, for one, it was in the wake of a mass shooting in, in Nashville. And here we are this morning or this afternoon for you in the wake of another mass shooting, this one in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm struck by, I, I, my lament deepens about how what once was a one-off act of terrorism is becoming terrifying endemic of gun violence. We live perpetually in the wake of another mass shooting, it seems, or act of gun violence. It also comes in the wake of a couple of politicians being expelled from their seats for daring to do their jobs. And we as leaders on this call, I hope we're here to grow in resilience as everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders because we acknowledge that when we stand up and move in the direction of nonviolence, it's very costly. And so we lament, we're here to grow resilience, and ultimately we're here to move with merciful action in the direction of repair we acknowledge that this is one of many conversations hosted by many organizations today this week this month and over the course of history and th- this is not this is not an exhaustive or a conclusive conversation what we hold in common as panelists is that we're fueled by our faith into a non- we're fueled by our faith in a non-violent cross-wearing god into the broken things to be a part of repair that's why we're here and Today, we're talking about gun violence, but ultimately, we don't get to be cause-based people or issues-based people. As followers of Jesus, we're actually invited into the fray that's right in front of us, equipped with the tools to transform. And that, so that's what we hold in common. That's the unique conversation that we're going to have today. In part one of this session, Shane Claiborne offered some really important perspective on our national fixation with guns, its incongruence with Jesus, and what it's costing us. And then Mike Martin from Raw Tools invited us as individuals and congregations to take tangible actions that lead to change. And then our third panelist was a really, really unique voice. It was a dear friend of mine, Kelly Knox, who's a gun owner, who took a really important journey to make a decision to decommission his AR-15. And if you have 10 minutes and haven't seen part one, listening to his journey is worth your time. That in and of itself is worth your time. And then Pastor Amy Kasari of Antioch in Bend, Oregon, um, talked about the journey that her congregation is taking in the direction of becoming a gun decommissioning site. So it was a remarkable conversation. Use it in your congregations as a tool for a catalyzing tool to move folks into this conversation because it was really, really accessible, really thought-provoking and inspirational. There there are a couple of framing thoughts, though, that inform part two of this conversation. And here they are. Number one, American Christians are heavily armed. And we tend to be the most vehement about our right to own and carry weapons for the purpose of self-defense or violence. As Shane said, the people who claim to follow the Prince of Peace tend to be the ones packing the most heat. Number two, many outside of white American Christianity see us as the problem and few actually expect us to be a part of change. Number three, political advocacy is important on this issue. And we as faith leaders and congregations don't need to wait until they find their will and agency. We can do so much more. And number four, there is much at stake for faith leaders who move in the direction of nonviolence, especially as it relates to guns. And so for you to even take a step into this conversation, you know that you do so with risk. There's risk involved. And so here we are together saying, number one, we need companionship in our formation as reconciling leaders. We need practical ideas and opportunities, and we need the strength and courage that's found in community together. We need to do this together. And so that's much of what this conversation is all about. This morning's panel brings the return of two of those friends and then a voice that's new to me, but not new to reducing gun violence in our country. Mike Martin is the founder and executive director of Raw Tools, which is a peacemaking organization committed to disarming hearts and forging peace. Mike and his team are quite literally transforming guns into garden tools and believe that congregations have a huge role to play in the eradication of gun violence in America. Pastor Amy Kasari is the pastor of Hospitality and Justice at Anyak in Bend, Oregon, Antioch is a church located in the heavily armed Central Oregon, and they're committed to joining God in the reconciliation of all things. And then Reverend Jan Orr Charter is the moderator of the Gun Violence Prevention Working Group of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, which is a coalition of leaders and congregations committed to moving the needle on gun violence in America. And so we have three really remarkable leaders Everyday peacemakers, reconciling leaders who are leveraging their influence in a way to raise our capacity to be a part of change on this issue. And so I'm excited to, to enter into this conversation. So Mike, we're going to come to you first and we would love to hear more about raw tools and the work that raw tools is doing around forming gun decommissioning sites. You're transforming congregations into gun decommissioning sites. So orient us to the larger work and then help us understand what that means.
1: Yeah. So we started 10 years ago, turning guns into garden tools, mostly as what I often say is an event-based organization. So we would be invited to go to a church to turn a gun into a garden tool with a gun that came from that community. And then also hear from the folks in that community who've been impacted by gun violence and then invite everybody present into the process of making a garden tool from that. We'd have people who are affected by gun violence picking up the hammer, making a garden tool out of a gun that was donated from their community as a way to invite people into a process that in that really spurs. It's one of those mustard seed moments, action into connecting more. There are so many different intersections of gun violence, which gives us so many different solutions depending on the context of gun violence. That your church is in. For instance, suicide could be a big part of the veteran community here in Colorado Springs, and firearms are the number one choice for method on that. Another place could be dealing with inner city violence or police violence or safe storage. So, all of these things matter to think about in your context. What is the problem in my neighborhood, and how can I best connect to that? If you're stuck between different political or theological ideologies, then that can also help inform what's the easiest access to talk about, just getting people to the table to talk about this, and then the implications of becoming public with your church about this is what we want to do. And so this process to build up churches to become decommissioning sites really started by churches inviting us to turn guns into garden tools, and we continually and slowly really an organic process built on that to the point where when Shane and I were traveling for our book tour and doing this at every site, people would leave the event and say, I'll be right back with my guns. That It was like those loaves and fishes kind of moment where we only planned to get one gun that night for the event, but then we chopped up a dozen because multiple people went down the street, grabbed their guns and brought them back because they heard of people who've been impacted by gun violence 30 years ago and how they're still... Every day they have to wake up and deal with the trauma of that loss. And they wake up in different frames of mind. And so I think one, there's the logistical piece of this that Jane will probably talk about a little bit later, and maybe she can fill in the blanks that I leave out. But so you have to, you have to cut up the gun to fulfill legal requirements. And that's three cuts through the gun. I sent in a picture to Maggie, but if it doesn't get up, that's okay. It's really simple. You make three cuts with the saw. Most people have access to a saw like this. And if not, it's really cheap compared to other. This feels like a big thing to get involved in, but it's very accessible. And especially once you do it once, it feels even easier to do again, but it feels daunting to think about an assault rifle showing up at your church parking lot, and then you taking a saw to it and everybody being okay. There's sparks, there's potential for it to be loaded. So this is, these are the commonly owned firearms in America. You got handguns and hunting guns, and the one that doesn't look like a gun is actually what's called a receiver, sure, an AR-15 platform. We have to make these cuts to to successfully disable them so that we fulfill federal legal requirements. And the key here is that once these are disabled, they're no longer qualify as firearms. They're just scraps of metal, wood, and plastic. So that cuts through literally a lot of the red tape that it takes to navigate through this. We only see some small instances in Illinois or big cities like New York City that have handgun registries that need law enforcement supervision to remove them from the registry to confirm that they've been disabled. But 99% of the places that you all are, this fulfills local and legal requirements. So this is part of the support that we offer to you as you're exploring this to help navigate the local laws that you have. We do this on a case by case basis. I also can zoom in and talk to your congregation about some questions that they might have. We actually just had a church in Denver sign up to hold a buyback, and they had to pull out of that because there was a loud, small uh, group of men in the church who did not want their church to do this. And so we'll probably go through a slower process with them to unpack the concerns. And then that really brings you to the point where you can either get Gun donations through our website, passively, you wait for someone to want to donate a gun. We get that request and we see that it's in your area. So we'll connect you to that gun donor and set up a time to meet in a parking lot, plug in the saw and cut it up. It's really a 10 minute process. We also walk through possible situations where there might be trauma attached to that gun donation and help you answer that or help remind you to bring people who are qualified. Maybe that's pastoral counseling or mental health professionals who might be able to connect these people to resources. Myself and others have received firearms right out of evidence boxes. So sometimes that's because they went to the police station right after the loss of a loved one to pick up what is now their property, and they bring it straight to us. Or it's been in their storage unit for 30 years. They never wanted to see it since they received it. So there's, they're watching it. They're seeing it for the first time since the trauma very often. So all of this stuff... All these layers is happening while this is there, and that really opens up this big opportunity for faith communities to be public, which is the other way that you can accept these. You can be a part of our network and not necessarily be publicly listed on our website, or you can be a part of our network and be public in your neighborhood and say, we're a church that is sick of the gun violence epidemic in the U.S., and we're going to offer solutions. So once you start cutting up firearms, you naturally start to connect to the resources in your community that help with gun violence prevention and postvention. So one, one, we don't want it to happen anymore, but it's going to continue happening. So how do we help the people who are going through it not fall into kind of the negative cycles? Um, Sometimes that's victim offender cycles, right? If it was a harm cause, then you start to harm others or... It's just that your own mental health starts to deteriorate after a sudden loss of a loved one. There's a lot of that you start to move into and you will find that people in your church are very passionate about these different issues that affect gun violence. It could be suicide prevention or domestic violence resources, things like that. People in your church are very passionate about what we call or what a lot of people say it's either a gun problem or a heart problem. The heart pieces to this that really push us towards choosing violence there's a lot of us in our churches that have the resources and skills to identify and help people in your community who are struggling find a job or housing or just went through a divorce or loss of employment. There's all these kinds of things that contribute to the moment gun violence happens. And once you can cut up that firearm and remove the lethal means from a conflict, then you can start dealing with the conflict and what has informed it. Jar asked me to pick a story that kind of exemplifies this moment. And there are so many different little pieces of this. But recently, after the Club Q shooting here in Colorado Springs, we had an LGBTQ couple who inherited firearms, donate firearms to be used and cut up and something made out of that to support the local community here in Colorado Springs. And so actually next week, we're going to be turning those into garden tools and other pieces of art and a local community garden. The tool will be used to grow food for Colorado Springs, but also victims and survivors of the Club Q shooting, as well as other gun violence in Colorado Springs. We actually have a lot of mass shootings in our city are invited to this. Unfortunately, we have people who have gone through this a decade ago and they can help the survivors who are going through it right now as the trial starts next month. So you have these markers, especially in mass shootings, when the collective grief of a group is going to hit rock bottom, And what can help bring it out because unfortunately we have too many of the mass shootings, but more often you're going to, you're going to see connections to suicide or domestic violence that you're going to deal with. And really a lot of mass shootings are classified as suicide because they don't expect to survive. So there's just so many beautiful things that grow out of this that you don't plan for. And that really motivates you and the rest of your church to continue exploring nonviolent options to conflict, but also how to engage your community in reducing gun violence. Thanks,
0: Mike. Yeah, I'm struck. So for those of you who are like, what does it mean to become a gun decommissioning site? Here we have in raw tools, the resource to say here, here's very practically the resources that you need. Here's exactly how you cut up these guns. Here's a template for how you actually host one of these public events, or maybe it's not a public event, but here's how you go about doing that. But the other thing that that I'm struck by in Mike's leadership is he's also a Presbyterian pastor. And so he brings a pastoral understanding of like, how do you think about some congregational formation? How do we anticipate some of the obstacles that we're going to encounter along the way? And how do we pastor our congregations through the necessary change that it takes to actually become a gun de- decommissioning site? There's a transformation of heart, soul, and culture that needs to happen there. And so though that pathway is available. And then we'll talk with Janet a little bit around how we as faith leaders really prepare to enter into this and to do this work. A couple of things I want to point to though, it, it, the, the, the online database of gun decommissioning sites is something that Kelly Knox, who was one of our storytellers in our first session, he, there, I think there are several people. I think there are lots of people like Kelly. Own assault rifles or weapons for self defense, or maybe they've a gun used in suicide has been returned to them. They don't want that weapon, but they don't know what to do with it. There's lots and lots of people like that in our communities. Kelly was able to decommission his gun rather than donate it or sell it because he found a gun decommissioning site in his neighborhood that was linked on Raw Tools website. So it's a unique way, and it wasn't even his church, you know? So it's a unique way to serve your community by becoming this. The second thing that I want to raise up here, Mike, is that this isn't just a church doing a thing. Like the way that you talk about this is a church offering a service to a community in relationship with the other social agencies, with local law enforcement, with other faith communities, trauma-informed care specialists. It's an opportunity to build deeper collaborations in, in your context. Can you say just a little bit more on that? And then there was one question about how many Guns to Garden events do you think Raw Tools has participated in the last 10 years?
1: I'll answer the question first. It's hundreds. We did 40 just on the book tour and we have been doing one a month at minimum for the last 10 years. It's, hundred, it's over 100, probably close to 200 gun to Garden Tool events themselves. But what's even better is along with this disarming network, a part of it is a uh, growing blacksmith network. So we now have the Raw Tools Buffalo, Raw Tools Philly, Raw Tools Pacific Northwest, and other partner organizations who are also doing guns to garden tools demonstrations. We have a blacksmith in Connecticut who has his summer is booked for as long as he shall live. He says that he will be at summer camps with youth in Connecticut and New York right on. Teaching them how to turn guns into garden tools. So that that's, there's other, there's so many different entrance points to this. So it could be the blacksmithing, it could be the cutting up, it could be these other connections to resources in your community. One of the best things that we did at the Guns to Garden Tools demos is saying, let's get all the partner organizations in. And what we found out is there, we're all siloed. right? Like suicide prevention organizations typically reach out to other suicide prevention organizations but they don't kind of cross-pollinate with domestic violence or, or other pieces of this, even safe storage. So the other beautiful thing is that these people might be meeting each other for the first time at the events as well, and they'll start planning collaborations. And I'll hear a lot of pastors say, I didn't know that this person has dealt with gun violence in their life when they are invited to the anvil and pick up the hammer. When we, when we make that invitation beyond the people who just shared at the event, to, to pick up the hammer and we say, if there's anybody else here and you wanna take a turn at the hammer, come forward. And so then you're also seeing connections between your church leadership and the congregation. These people are also, the, these events invite people into, are taking in this solution. And that could be added time, it could be added donations to support a cause like suicide prevention. It might push your congregation to follow a passion of one or two or three members that were at that event? And how can we reduce gun violence in our local context? Sure. Love it. Well, let's come
0: to you, Amy, because here in, in your life and leadership is a congregation who is on a journey, like a real-time journey in becoming a gun decommissioning site. Now, we could have invited a hundred different faith leaders who are gun decommissioning sites But we want to hear from you because you're in the process of becoming that. A couple of things that I really admire, Amy, about you and about Pete and the team at Antioch is your commitment to process, to transformation, to the journey of your congregation so that the the decisions that you make, especially with regard to justice, because they seem to be lightning rod issues, have stay power. And your congregation is prepared to do this together. And Amy, talk to us a little bit about, maybe you can even start with some of your own personal relationship with guns and the way that you've been thinking about this. And then the journey that Antioch is on, highlighting the obstacles and the very meticulous steps that you've taken as you're building this road as you go, of course, but tell us the story and then we'll interact. I'm sure, and folks are going to be Q&A and you along the way. So I'll be firing questions from our audience to you. So take us away, Amy.
2: Great, great. Yeah. I appreciate the framing of we are on the journey. And I guess I would say to those of you who are watching, listening to this, like you're on the journey now too, because you're listening to this webinar and that's all it takes is just taking those steps. So yeah, congratulations. You're on the journey with us. As Jer said, I thought I would start a little bit just with my personal story. I am a product of the American Conservative Evangelical Church. I was born late 60s as the mainline churches and the evangelical churches were getting farther and farther apart. I remember as a child very clearly wondering why we don't like Jimmy Carter. (laughs) Isn't he a believer too? And growing up in that space of this tension where uh, evangelicals hunkered down and focused on just individual, just heart, and seemed to disengage from what was happening in the world around us, I grew up with the whole world's gonna burn. So who cares? It's gotta get really bad before Jesus comes and then he's gonna, you know, magic it all away. So that's kind of my upbringing. And as I entered adulthood, got married, had kids, I just felt like I was holding these big faith questions and watching the world and watching social issues and violence and brokenness in the world and just wondering. What to do with all that while holding on to my faith. So thank God I found Antioch Church in Bend, Oregon. Whew, deep breath. I knew instantly that these were my people because they were talking about both things. They were talking about a personal relationship with Jesus and about pursuing justice. Our founding pastor actually wrote a book titled Pursuing Justice, and we talked about Christianity on a global scale, we wrestle with the big questions. He loved to say that we talk about truth, which is what we see, and justice, which is what it ought to be. And as believers, we know that, that what ought to be is God's kingdom here on earth. So uh, that's justice. And I think we can all admit that uh, posing with an AR-15 is maybe not justice, might be truth, but certainly isn't what ought to be. Once our founding pastor moved on and our new lead pastor, Pete Kelly, stepped in, we really decided as a team to boil our work down to uh, the footprint that we occupy here in Central Oregon, in Bend, Oregon. I stepped into my role at that time about five years ago, and we adopted the mission statement of the reconciliation of all things. And we began to hone on what it means to preach the whole gospel. Which combines the faithful messages of the evangelical church that I grew up in and the mainline more progressive church that we see in our country today. We sort of talk about it as a both and works and words, showing Jesus and preaching Jesus, doing good and being good, physical needs and spiritual needs, sort of trying to occupy this middle space, which is sometimes a lonely space, but it's where God's called us. When I first took this job, I spent six months every day walking the city block where our building is. We're in a neighborhood. We share a piece of land with our local Salvation Army. And I just walked and prayed and walked and prayed every morning, just asking God to show us the way. Typically, my role as a pastor of hospitality and justice is sort of a missions pastor. So there was a lot of American baggage that comes with that role. We had previously sponsored an orphanage in Uganda, and we had missionaries who were coming by asking us for support, but I just didn't feel that was the direction God was calling us as a church. So again, I prayed and I walked and I prayed and gradually organizations in our town started to come forward to become ministry partners with us. They were doing the work of reconciling broken areas in our city and in our community. So we just started taking steps towards engaging with homelessness. We have a wonderful organization that we work with that is doing amazing price centered work in homelessness. We started engaging in addiction and recovery in the foster care system, then into immigration, into our local schools and brokenness there. We even have a ministry partner now that works in the adult entertainment and industry of which we only have one in Bend, but we're there. It's part of our community. So we continue to seek God's leading. Fast forward to we had our first quasi-mass shooting in Bend, and it came home that this conversation around nonviolence is something we need to move from the edges of our consciousness and into the forefront of our churches, of our church's work in our community. It was pretty clear who we would go to as a ministry partner. I had read the book Beating Guns ages ago and was so intrigued by that. So thankfully, I have a relationship with Jared. He set up a Zoom for Mike and I and my lead pastor, and we just started to imagine what it could look like to start moving our church in the direction of becoming a gun decommissioning site. And then just As the news is unfolding with another mass shooting over and over and over, Mike, I like what you said. You said, we're a church that's sick of the gun violence in the U.S., so we're going to start cutting up guns. I think that captures the refrain of a lot of people in our community right now. We're just sick of it, sick of saying uh, you have our thoughts and prayers. There's just this passion to want to start being different. For me, it's always tempting for me to just jump and run ahead, but I've learned over my five years of this work that is generally not lasting. So I'm part of a congregation, and the process we are on is we are having conversations with our people. We're running an adult Sunday morning class for people who want to engage in the idea of what it means to be a nonviolent follower of Jesus. And the hope is through the discussions and the books and the side conversations that will build a crew of Antiochers who are ready to operate a gun decommissioning site. And I'm not, again, just being real with you, I'm not totally sure what that's going to look like if we're going to do one event or an event every two years, or I'm not sure what it's going to look like. We're in the middle of that. But I'm excited to be in a space where we're having these conversations. It's really jarring to see photos in the media and on social media of families posing with their guns. And I just, I feel like now is past the time for Christ followers to present a different hope. Our hope isn't in weaponry. Our hope is in Jesus. And just coming up of Easter, when we imagine Jesus on the cross with his arms spread wide in love and in welcoming. And it's just such a contrast to me to imagine a believer clutching a gun in contrast to Jesus with his arms open wide. And feels very clear to me where God is calling us, not this, but into this. I don't know. I'm rambling. I have lots of notes, but that's the gist of where we're at. And I'd love to field any questions or anything I'm missing, Jer.
0: Yeah, okay. yeah. And for those of you who are listening in, go ahead and if there are some burning questions for you, go ahead and populate those in the Q and A. I mean, I am I'm struck by a couple of things. One, and this is for all of us listening in, Antioch is a concert like its roots are a conservative Baptist church. It's yeah. if this can happen with a conservative Baptist church, I think it can happen with any church. Not to mention totally. The social location of Central Oregon boasts one of the most heavily condensed white militia and heavily armed locations in the country. So like this is talk about living as the hopeful alternative in the midst of a very, a very heavily armed violent context. So if this can happen in Bend, Oregon, I think it can happen anywhere. One question that I'm wondering is... You all are making a decision. You didn't start with a conversation on guns and gun violence. You're starting with a conversation on nonviolence. In other words, you're not talking about the hardware and weaponry and policy. You're talking theology. Can you help us understand why you're starting with nonviolence and theology and what that's doing right now to to Anya?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to share just one little story that I meant to tell you also. Yeah. Antioch is in a uh, a really divided church community. We have progressive mainline churches on one side who are marching and protesting and talking a lot about voting and laws. And then we have evangelical, conservative evangelical churches on the other side who are literally saying from their pulpits, in the midst of a mass shooting, now is not the time to talk about laws. Now is the time to pray and to send thoughts and prayers, right? So we're in this middle space trying to navigate both of those sides. And I'll I'll just share that my family, uh, tons of hunters, my, one of my brother-in-laws, I don't even know how many guns he has. My younger brother has an arsenal of AR-15s because they're fun. It's just an expensive toy for him. My three-year-old nephew was given a gun on his third birthday because it's time he starts to learn how to protect his family. So this is the this is the culture of Central Oregon, and a real common bumper sticker is Oregon, but it's spelled O-R-Y-G-U-N, Oregon. So that that's where we're at, and uh, I think, Jared, what you're talking about coming at this from a theological perspective is just that's part of our navigating that middle space where there's absolute value in voting and in laws and in protesting. But real change comes from understanding the reasons behind what we're called to as believers. So having the talks and doing the work of understanding why we're called to this, our hope is that will actually bring lasting change. And like you said, we're not we're not new to these things. We over the years have engaged a plenty with Black Lives Matter and systemic racism in the church and women in leadership and immigration and on and on and on from a theological perspective. What is God calling us to? How do we show up in relatively conservative Central Oregon as believers?
0: Really helpful, Amy. Thank you. Um, want to move. Uh, well, one, one last question, Amy, and maybe just hit on this quickly. What are the obstacles that you've encountered and how are you navigating them?
2: Yeah. Again, we're in process. So I would say the vocal people in our congregation are the ones who are for this. So I think we are just on the edge of, um, Mike, like you shared, the one church that was all in and then. Red light, and you got to back up and have those conversations. So, um, the last three years have been hard. (laughs) We've had a lot of really intense discussions in our church, and we've lost a lot of people. The people who are part of our community right now are like, feel like they're all in. So, my hope is that we're just going to keep moving forward. But I would anticipate a lot of members in our congregation own weapons. They're responsible in their eyes, gun users. Um, so I anticipate some pushback there. I also anticipate fear being a big factor. That's a lot of the justification for people wanting to be armed. And as our quasi mass shooting was unfolding, the interwebs were full of people advocating for if everyone was open carry, this wouldn't have happened. We would have taken them out. So that mindset of fear and if I don't have a gun, then I'm going to get shot. And that, so I'm anticipating that, but again, we're just at the beginning. So stay tuned. We'll let you know.
1: Yeah, thanks,
0: Amy. Now, here's the unique thing is that Amy, her team, and Antioch are taking this journey as a church, as a team, but also alone. They're one church in Central Oregon taking this journey. The beautiful opportunity and invitation is that you don't have to take the journey that Amy and her team are taking alone. And that's why Rev. Jan is on the call with us, because with the Presbyterian Peace Circle, they've actually created action circles, mini cohorts for faith leaders like you who want to understand more about how we can play a role as congregations in disarming America. And we get to actually take this journey together. And Jan, thank you for being a part of this conversation. Orient us a bit to the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship the work that you all have been doing around reducing gun violence for a long time. And then let's talk a little bit about the Guns to Garden Tools Action Circle. What is this? How do we get involved in it? And what happens as a result?
3: It is an honor to be here with all of you who want to prevent gun violence in America. You are God's chosen. The Presbyterian Peace Fellowship was actually founded nearly 80 years ago in the midst of World War II, trying to support conscientious objectors to World War II, and after the war, trying to encourage Presbyterians to find and support alternatives to violence in war, such as gun violence. We are Presbyterians, but we are independent from the denomination. We're a we're, uh, fellowship that tries to give mutual support to people who are leading these difficult issues in their congregations all around the country. So we're small, we're self-funding, we're volunteers. We have a small staff. We have this fantastic gun violence prevention working group of 11 of us across the country. These are really busy people who are leading gun violence prevention from Chicago to Oakland to all over, to New York, everywhere. We have the Reverend Deanna Hollis as our coordinator. Deanna is the first person in the United States ordained to a ministry of gun violence prevention. One of our projects is a gun violence prevention congregational toolkit, which has been accessed online by nearly 2,000 people in all 50 states. We just learned... That this summer we'll be at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina, uh, to present a demonstration of Guns to Gardens. So in the last two years, we have really dug into Guns to Gardens and the commitment that we made to Mike and Shane and others was that we would carry forth a training component that would bring congregational leaders together, a clergy and lay to give the actual nuts and bolts of how you do Guns to Gardens. We've gotten really good at dancing across Zoom. And so we do our training action circles through Zoom. It's one hour a week for five weeks, about 25 people on the screen. The action circle participants do about one hour of preparation each week with resources that we send. Now, why are these action circles rather than training events? We're trying to facilitate people bonding. We're trying to create a movement where people encourage and help each other to grow Guns to Gardens. Guns to Gardens is not easy. We need each other. Uh, we start each session with a spiritual prayer practice and we give an opportunity for everyone to share what obstacle or what success they had in the last week on their Guns to Gardens work. They listen to each other. So it's a, a circle, a community for action. It's very participatory, it's ecumenical. And I see we've got a Salvation Army representative on here today. We would love to have someone from the Salvation Army join in action circle. What we're doing is we're sharing the best practices for Guns to Gardens that are emerging brand new from congregations as this movement takes off. The model that we use comes from the Community United Church of Christ in Boulder, Colorado, and some of them are here today. In 2021, they held the first Guns to Gardens event in a church parking lot that we know of. It was in response to a mass shooting at the King Super's grocery store in their neighborhood. So in addition to Mike and Raw Tools and Shane, our program is indebted to that courageous and compassionate congregation. We also have a very close bond with New Mexicans to prevent gun violence, and so we use their videos and their resources all the time as well. So far, we have over 200 Action Circle graduates around the country from 100 congregations, nine denominations, and 10 nonprofits. So here's what we cover in five weeks. Okay. It's a lot. The first session is an introduction. What is Guns to Gardens? And how do you present it to your church and your church leaders? We provide language to use. And some language to not use. We don't use the word disarming. We use dismantling or decommissioning. We talk about the three Ps of Guns to Gardens as a way to present this to your congregation. The three Ps for us are Guns to Gardens is practical. It gets rid of guns without putting them in the market. It's pastoral because people are broken and traumatized by gun violence in our country, and the church is the perfect place for these events to happen. And it's prophetic. Because it's Americans voluntarily getting rid of guns rather than getting more guns. And so we think that is a challenge to our elected officials and anyone else that the Holy Spirit can get to do more, to go beyond Guns to Gardens. So it's all of those things. So in that first session, you're learning how to talk about it. We also present a way to find allies. So the first week's assignment is to identify Guns to Gardens allies in your community. The second week is all about logistics and chop saws. We use Mike's training video. We use a video from an actual church Guns to Gardens event. We study that diagram that Mike showed you from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives on how to legally decommission a gun. We talk about safety issues. We have a site plan that we share that shows how you can create a flow in your church parking lot so that the gun owner can stay in their car and drive through the event. We talk about supplies, we talk about the various roles of volunteers, the chop saw operator, the gun handler who must know how to check a gun to make sure that it is not loaded. We have a lot of discussions and questions in that session. We also talk in that session about whether or not to involve your local police and the implications of that based on your state laws. The third session is about gift cards, fundraising, and publicity. We talk about exactly how to set up a church corporate gift card account so that you can order bulk gift cards. You can't just go into your grocery store. We've had people try. You can't go in and buy five to $10,000 worth of gift cards because gift cards are used in money laundering, so they won't sell them to you. So you have to go through a process of knowing how to get gift cards. We talk about fundraising, and then the screen just comes alive. Everybody in the group has an idea about how to raise money for Guns to Gardens. We coached the group on publicity. We even had one church that went through Guns to Gardens, and they decided not to do any publicity because they were afraid. This was in Georgia. And so they were all set up with their chops fill. They knew what to do, and nobody came. So the second one that they did, they did the publicity. We talk about how to do publicity in the church, among churches, how to use press releases and social media to get the word out. We also encourage people not just to promote their event, but to put themselves in the context of a growing national movement, that this is something brand new that American citizens are taking upon themselves. So it's always in the context of promoting a national movement. The fourth session is on race and guns. The Presbyterian Peace Fellowship has a commitment to look at everything we do through the lens of anti-racism. So in that session, we use resources and films, particularly from leaders, people of color, voices of color, to help us better understand the dynamics of race and guns. For instance, most of us are not familiar with the history of the Second Amendment and the compromise that was gotten between the Second Amendment, whose original purpose was to help preserve slavery. We talk in depth about the impact that guns and gun violence have had and continue to have on communities of color every day. The final session is on the pastoral care and spiritual courage of everyone involved in Guns to Gardens. We talk about the role of the shepherd Who is the volunteer who accompanies the gun owner through the process of dismantling the gun? Who hears their story if they choose to share it? We talk about park and pray stations. We talk about the spiritual care and blessing of all the volunteers who are involved in this project. We even have a blessing of the saw. We close with a, we close the action circle with a rather sacred time of giving all of the people involved who are generally going to be the leaders in these events, an opportunity to reflect on their own personal motivation and the spiritual gifts that God has given them for this work. So those are the five sessions. Afterwards, we stay in touch with these folks. When they graduate, they get this huge Google Doc from us that has all the resources we gave them, plus where to find more, how to find Mike, how to find all these things. It's a Google Doc so that as more best practices and resources come forward from churches, we can update the Google Doc and everybody's version will automatically update. It's absolutely magic. We are able to connect people geographically. If someone was in the Summer Action Circle from North Carolina, we can put them in touch with someone who was in the Spring Action Circle from their area. So we try to bring people together. This Thursday, we're having our first Guns to Gardens Action Circle Tune-Up Call. We've invited everybody who's graduated to come back and meet in small breakout rooms to talk about how it's going, successes, problems, where they are on this journey of Guns to Gardens. That's part of our momentum to encourage everyone to participate on June 10th, this coming June 10th, which is the next National Guns to Gardens Day. It'll be our third National Guns to Gardens Day. After that Guns to Gardens Day, we get back in touch with them, and they tell us the stories, how it went. This lady brought 25 guns that had been under her couch for 17 years. She said she was finally going to sleep well that night. We get those stories from congregations, and we make a national press release, and we submit that to um, numerous sources. Guns to Gardens is something that has a lot of working parts, and it is not easy. You cannot do this alone we are meeting amazing people who are determined to bond together to prevent gun violence. We are so proud of these people and they are the best churches in America as far as I can tell. Here's one example of the kind of community we're trying to create. In this winter action circle, just by coincidence, there were all these folks from the St. Louis area, nuns, Presbyterians, all these folks, they did not know each other. And at the end of one session, one person raised his hand and said, would it be possible for those of us from St. Louis just to stay on for a minute after this Zoom call? We said, sure. So we sat back and they they just jumped in meeting each other, sharing their contact information. And we watched as they planned an ecumenical Guns to Gardens event spontaneously right there after the Zoom training. And that's going to happen on June 10th. So we this is, the, this is the connecting we're trying to facilitate. And I invite any of you who are listening and any others from your church to sign up for the next action circles. We've got a spring one. The next action circle is May 4th through June 1st at 730 on Thursdays in the evening. And then we'll have another one this summer. If you sign up with the link and it says sign up on the waiting list, go ahead and sign up. We'll get back to you, and we will get you in an action circle if you are interested. We want to be there to serve you. I want to close with a quote from Reverend Nicole March, who is the pastor of Community United Church of Christ in Boulder, and I think she's here in the call today. Nicole said this, Don't underestimate our role as conveners in the community. Our places and spaces as people of faith and kindness are game changers. People are looking to transform all of this trauma. In a time of uncertainty, Guns to Gardens is something the church can offer. We are made for such a time as this. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Jan. So good, so practical. Friends, and as you hear, there's, there's, there has been historically a movement at and, foot, and we get to be a part of growing that we get to be a part of it if we want to. And so one of the things I'm so compelled by, not only the practical invitation and the training that happens, but I love the idea of the cross pollinating that happens between reconciling leaders and the congregation who are involved in this work and the network, the growing network that's building for us to literally cross pollinate our ideas and our programming. I'm looking at the comment section, the Q and A, there's questions being asked of Amy. You know, what are the resources? What are the teaching sessions? What are you guys doing? That's what's happening here in collaboration with raw tools and the Presbyterian peace circle. We're resourcing gun violence reduction together. And, and I think we're microdosing our way in the direction, in the right direction, the direction of repair, but we get to do this together. And so friends, the, the invitation is to take the next step beyond this informational. Call into the movement, the most practical next step that you can take is to register for the Guns to Gardens Action Circle. Jan, can you let us know how many spots are available for this? What do we do if it's already full? Things like that.
3: If it says sign up for, there are a few spots open as of this morning. If it's full, it says sign up for a waiting list. So sign up. We may have a second session running this spring. So we'll get back to you. Sometimes we offer them midday. Thursdays at 12.30 Eastern time, a lunch hour gathering. So we will get you up in there. If it says sign, sign up for waiting list, I was telling Jared that this morning that that a whole bunch of folks from Illinois, from one church, signed up for this particular cohort. So we may move them out and have their own cohort and open up more spaces. We generally have 25 people. We've done it with as many as 40. 25 is a good number for interaction. So it's about that.
0: Would it be great if the 30 people represented here right now, representing at least 30 different congregations entered into this space? Uh, I would recommend if you do this as a congregational leader, bring at least one other leader with you into the space. It's just so much better to have a dialogue partner to be able to bring this and infect your community and your congregation as a tandem or as a trio rather than as an isolated leader. So friends here on this screen, you have An organization like Raw Tools actually helping us become gun decommissioning sites, turning guns into guard tools. You've got the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship who's convening leaders, teaching us actually how to do this and then how to build a coalition, a network, a community of congregations committed to reducing gun violence. You've got an organization like Global Immersion committed to raising up everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders who are shaping reconciling congregations to participate in the repair of your contexts lean on us. We're here to support you, to join you, offer companionship in your formation, and ultimately to link us and mobilize us in the work of repair in the world. And so we want to encourage you, take a next step. You'll receive a follow-up email with all of these links, and we look forward to seeing you in the game very soon. Thanks for your time this morning.